Well, it's good to see everyone this morning. We're changing things up just a little bit, and uh, we're going to do a little more singing at the end of the service. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. This summer, we're in a series in Mark's gospel called Journey with Jesus, and uh, the gospel of Mark is this action-packed thriller. There's a lot of movement. It moves very quickly. He's always saying immediately this, immediately that, and it gives a lot of attention to details, specifically places that Jesus traveled, and so that's one of the reasons why I've been talking about these various places and doing a little bit of digging about uh, the places where Jesus walked as we studied through these biographical accounts, if you will, of what Jesus taught, what he did, and where he went. We are a people of the book. We believe, believe that the word of God given to us is inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, and these are true accounts. And just like that song, um, How Great Thou Art, and the psalm that John read, you know, those things are the telling forth of God's mighty works from generation to generation. And so, uh, we look back and we see what God has done in the hopes and belief and the knowledge that he is still working today. But we need to be aware of what he has done. And as we're looking at this journey with Jesus, uh, in the month of June, we looked at a little bit about the public ministry of Jesus in some of the early chapters of the Gospel of Mark, the things that he did publicly for all to see. Here in July, uh, we're looking at the private teaching or instruction of Jesus to his disciples. That's a, uh, a major section in the Gospel of Mark. And then in um, August, we're going to look at the last major section of Mark's Gospel, and that is the passion narrative, the cross, the death of Christ, his trial, and the empty tomb, and the things that he taught after his resurrection. So that's kind of where we've been and where we're going. Today's passage in Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, is integrally linked to last week's message. As we looked at the uh, confession of Peter that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Messiah that God has sent to the world. Peter confesses that. And there's an interesting little interchange that takes place there that we looked at last week. But really... Uh, what we're going to look at today has to be taken in light of that. You know, Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ took place in the northernmost place that Jesus went and ministered there in Caesarea Philippi. And so if you're kind of tracking with the geography of the Gospel of Mark, you realize that what, what's happened is he's gone to the northernmost point, and now we're at a pivotal turn. If you were tracking this on the GPS, right, there would be this blue line going up, and, and he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, and now he's turning southward. And it's not just a geographical change or turning point. There is a turning point in the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is. Though they don't understand it fully, and he's teaching them some things, he begins to reveal about his death, his betrayal, and about his resurrection, and is blowing their minds a little bit. And so it's a turning point geographically, but also theologically in this book. And we want to be aware of that as we become more aware of who Jesus is and his messianic ministry. And today we're going to read about this account in Mark chapter 9, where Jesus takes three of his disciples up onto a mountain. And at that point, something miraculous happens. It's almost as if the veil of flesh is pulled away from Jesus, the Messiah, and they see his divine radiance. Mark chapter 9, let's read verses 1 through 10. And Jesus was saying to them, 
Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God when it has come with power. And six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, and no launderer on earth can whiten them, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter responded and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let's make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know how to reply, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain. And he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And they seized upon this statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. The first thing that I want us to consider along with this passage, as part of this passage, is the mysterious mountain of transfiguration and the fact that it is a place of heavenly revelation about Jesus, the mysterious mountain of transfiguration and this heavenly revelation about Jesus. We don't know what mountain they're on. It's not entirely clear. Some say it is Mount Tabor. Some say it's Mount Hermon, which is a very high mountain, almost 10,000 feet in elevation. We don't know. It just says a high mountain, a high mountain. So Jesus has now taken Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, if you will, those that he seemed to invest a little more time in and teaching, and he takes them up to this high mountain. And regardless of what mountain it is, these high mountaintops are places where you get away from people. It's a place of seclusion, if you will. High mountains are usually a place of breathtaking vistas where you see things from a perspective that you have not seen them before when you're down low. The event that we just read about is called the transfiguration, and that's taken from verse 2, where it says Jesus was transfigured or transformed, metamorphosis. You know the term metamorphosis, like a um, little larva, a worm, it turns into a caterpillar, metamorphosis. And there's all kinds of metamorphoses that we're aware of where something of one substance, all of a sudden it takes a different form, if you will. You can think about water. Liquid water being subjected to certain conditions becomes ice or maybe on the opposite end, something that you drink, something that's cool and refreshing with a little bit of heat added becomes something that you don't even want to touch your skin and then it turns to steam. So metamorphosis, we're... we're familiar with something or substance taking a whole new form, but it's pretty different when we think about a person. And all of a sudden, the witnesses say that Jesus changes. There's a change of actual appearance in Jesus. Can I just say, this is strange. This is something altogether different. It's hard to have categories for something like this. And honestly, we don't often know what to make of the transfiguration. But I want us to look again specifically at what is said happens there on that mountain. Number one, in the transfiguration of Jesus, he becomes radiant or bright. 
Specifically, it talks about his clothing becomes so white or dazzling. And the writers write down that this is not normal. You can't buy Tide Pods and do this. OxyClean will not make your white clothes shine this bright. In fact, there's no launderer on earth. We're meant to understand this. This was not something natural. Jesus didn't just get back his cleaners, uh, his clothes from the cleaners. This is, this is not something normal. And so he's radiating. There is this white. And I have to say this. I think that words fail us. If you were to go up onto a high mountain and look at a beautiful thing and then try to talk about it to someone else, you know, there is just almost no way that your words could convey the awe and the inspiration and what you have seen. You would talk about, well, I, I, I saw the sun and it was really colorful. And, and, and I was closer to the clouds. Yeah, and it's just hard to explain. And I think words fail us a little bit, so we have to use our sanctified imaginations. We have to let the Holy Spirit speak to us and open the eyes of our heart about what was it that they saw about Jesus. So there are his dazzling white clothes. Really, actually, there's three miracles, it seems like, or supernatural things that happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus' appearance, his face, his clothes become radiant. Then Elijah and Moses appear in that place. Two long-deceased Old Testament figures or leaders all of a sudden appear. We don't, how, do, how do we know, or how did the disciples know that it was Elijah and Moses? I don't know. Maybe they wear name tags in heaven. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's that. I think there's just a knowing. Somehow they know that it's Moses and Elijah. The Lord maybe just, just speaks into their heart. We don't know how they know, but they knew. And so here is Jesus now in this dazzling array. Here is Elijah. Here is Moses. And then there is the cloud that all of a sudden overshadows them and this voice from heaven that speaks to them. And then when that voice comes, Moses and Elijah are gone. Now again, you have to say that this is, this is a bit strange. And because of the strangeness of it, again, we admit that we're not really sure what we're supposed to do with this. We need to ask this question, what is the significance? So we talked a little bit about, there's a little bit of mystery here, but it is a heavenly revelation. So we need to dig a little deeper, go a little further, ask some questions, maybe read some supporting scriptures as we try to deal with the theological significance and meaning of the transfiguration because it's meant to tell the disciples, first of all, and then us something about Jesus and who he is, really, to help us to see something important about Jesus. So it's, it's tempting to kind of write this off and go, yeah, well, it's just a, a little bit of a strange account. We don't know what to do with it. Hey, listen, it's in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And actually, this story or account occupies a central point in the book, right at the dead center. So we can't just trash it. We can't just go on and not think about it. I, I read in uh, one theological journal this little entry. It probably comes as a surprise to many to discover that the accounts of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ are central to the synoptic or gospel narratives. At the halfway junction in both Matthew and Mark, just after Peter's confession and just after Jesus' revelation of his coming death, we have this, the transfiguration. So it's important. We need to dig into it a little bit. I would say for me as I'm studying this, there seem to be two main theological points are things about Jesus that I think that we're meant to get. So here they are as I see, that, see them. First, 
we have a revelation, a clearer revelation of the identity, the glory, and the majesty of Jesus. It's a further revelation about the identity, the glory, and the majesty of Jesus. And these three that are there with Jesus never forgot it. We, James didn't actually write anything, so we don't know, but we have letters from John. We have the Gospel of John. And then we have First and Second Peter. A little uh, scripture to write down in your notes or in your Bible, you could reference John 1.14. John 1.14, where I think Jesus introduce, uh, John introduces his gospel, largely based out of this event. In verse 14, here's what John writes in his gospel. We observed his glory. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the Father. John is saying, there was a time when I actually saw the glory of God manifested in Jesus. I think he's pointing back primarily, not only, but primarily to this event. If that is true, then the transfiguration for John serves as an authentication of who Jesus is, that he is the unique, the one and only. We, we're familiar with John 3.16, the only begotten son. There is a uniqueness and difference about Jesus. He is God's only son. And so it has to do with his identification, his deity, I think. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18 is another scripture that you could reference. And here's what Peter writes. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father. When the voice came to him from the majestic glory... We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. It's clear Peter is talking about the transfiguration. He said, we heard this voice and here's what we saw. Listen, we saw the majesty of Jesus on that mountain. We saw the majesty, the beauty in a way that is profound. We saw it. We understand who Jesus is in part. Because of what we saw. And Peter says, I'm telling you all these things. We were eyewitnesses. These are not things that we heard secondhand. These are things that we saw. We saw his majesty and his glory that came from God the Father. And not only that, we heard God's voice speak about him. So here are these radiant clothes. Radiant clothes and brightness. You know, you always see that associated with angelic appearances. This brightness and the glory of the Lord shining. And all of a sudden, the veil is pulled back from Jesus' humanity. And the three see this majesty. They see the sonship. They see the divine radiance of God in Jesus. The second thing of significance about the transfiguration, I believe, from studying the scriptures, is that the transfiguration served as a revelation of the power of the coming kingdom of God. The disciples are struggling, especially Peter, with this idea that you are the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you're the savior of the world, and now you're saying you're going to go and be rejected and you're going to die? I don't get it. I, I'm struggling with that. That seems like weakness. Crucifixion seems like weakness. It seems like losing. And so I think this in part is to help Peter to see there is no weakness here. There is meekness. There is humility. There is willing servitude on the part of Jesus, but there is 
no wimpiness or weakness. Mark 9, verse 1. And this is an important thing. In multiple places in the Gospels, Jesus says things like Mark 9, 1. Like some of you who are here now are going to see the kingdom of God come with power. It it's, seems to be, on face value taking it, like maybe he's saying that some of the early disciples, like Peter, James, and John, some of them, not all, because he said some, some of you will still be alive. Some of you are going to be living and see the kingdom of God come with power. A lot of people struggle with that because they go, the disciples all died and Jesus hasn't come again. It appears to me that verse 1 and that promise is being clearly linked to what happened to the transfiguration so that three specifically of those disciples that Jesus said those words to would go up onto the mountain six days later in just six days and they would see a glimpse of the power of the king. And it would be a foretaste of what is to come when Jesus comes again. Again, 2 Peter chapter 1, you can look back at that and he connects those very things. This prophetic foretaste of Jesus' second coming. In other words, Peter is an old man when he writes 2 Peter. He's saying, we saw the power of the kingdom. Now, the final era hasn't dawned yet, but we saw it. We saw the power of the kingdom. And I think that we're meant to understand that the transfiguration, so is the resurrection. Maybe so is the ascension, but for sure the transfiguration is one of the fulfillments of what Jesus says that the disciples would see right there. Here's the bottom line. The transfiguration showed those disciples, and we're to see it with spiritual eyes today, the beauty, the identity, the glory, and the majesty of King Jesus. He is the one and only Son of God. And this marked these disciples forever. The last thing I want us to look at in this passage is one of the things that is absolutely clear. A lot of it is kind of like, well, I'm not really sure what's going on there, and I need to reference this verse and that. There is a cloud that overshadows Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and then Peter, James, and John. And as that cloud envelops them, have y'all ever flown in a plane and you're kind of going through the clouds and you're like, I just want to walk through the clouds? Anyway, that's just me. I, I think it's so cool to think about flying through the clouds and, and, and looking down below and through them and you're in the middle of one. It's, it's really kind of surreal when you're in a plane. And uh, these guys are up on a mountain. And all of a sudden, this, I don't know if it's a dark cloud, but it's this big cloud. And it envelops them and they become afraid. They become afraid. They're, they're fearful. And they hear this voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. That's about as poignant and pointedly clear as anything gets. One of the humorous parts of this story is our old buddy Peter. What does he do? When all of this has happened, when he sees Elijah, when he sees Moses talking to Jesus, actually it appears that he's been sleeping again. He's prone to kind of sleep when there's not much action, and he wakes up and all of this is happening, and he just starts running off at the mouth. Hey, hey, uh, it's good that we're here. Why don't we build a couple of three tents? One for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses. That's what we ought to do. Peter's got an idea. And it's almost like this voice from the cloud is, again, modern day translation. Peter, shut up. 
Hush! Listen to Jesus. And there's a lot there that we could talk about. But Peter seems to be pretty prone to telling Jesus what he ought to be doing. How he thinks the kingdom of God ought to come in power. What they should do when God seems to show up. And the cloud overshadows them. And there is a voice. And it says, this is my son. Listen to him. Not, hey, there's Moses. You ought to listen to him. Now, Moses had had his mountaintop experience, didn't he? He went up on Mount Sinai. The glory of God was revealed to him, even reflected on him. But it didn't radiate from him like it did Jesus. And Moses brought down the Ten Commandments. And the people of Israel were to listen to Moses. They revered Moses. Here's an interesting thing that seems to be going on here. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 records a prophecy that Moses gave to Israel. It's a messianic prophecy is what it is. Here's what it says. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from among your people. You shall listen to him. That's interesting. All the way back before they ever came into the promised land, Moses said there's going to be a prophet. There's going to be one like me that the Lord raises up, and you got to listen to him. As if to say, whatever he says goes. He's the one you need to listen to. And now here is this voice from the cloud saying, this is my son. This is not just a servant like Moses that I have drawn up and pulled up to serve me. This is my son. Listen to him. Here is Jesus, the newer, the greater Moses. Listen to him. He is the fulfillment of all of the things that they learned from Moses. Here is the revered prophet Elijah. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. Elijah also had had a mountaintop experience on a place called Mount Carmel or Carmel. Y'all remember the story? There is, they're trying to figure out who's the true God. Elijah says, I I serve the true and living God. Y'all are serving the Baals. He said, let's do this. Let's prepare a sacrifice of animals and let's call down from our gods fire from the altar. I will call it down from Yahweh, the true and living God. You call on Baal and let him Rain down fire. We'll see who the true God is. And Elijah calls down fire from heaven, if you will. God answers the prayer of Elijah, as you might expect. That commanded a lot of respect from a lot of people. Hey, this is a holy man who has the very ear of God. He listens to God. God seems to even listen to what he says. So Elijah was a prophet of great reverence. But you know what's interesting? As soon as Elijah comes down from Mount Carmel, You know what the next thing that happens is? Ahab and Jezebel seek to kill him. And he goes into hiding. They're going to kill him. And again, I'm not sure what all to make of Elijah. There's three or four things that we could talk about. We don't have time to say today. But I think that one of the points that maybe this was for Peter, maybe for all of the disciples, to see Elijah and to think back about that story. Who is the prophet who has the very ear of God? And he was rejected by and large. They tried to kill him. The leaders of Israel were out for his blood. And so Peter's struggling with that idea. Why are they going to kill the Messiah? Because they have always killed the prophets. Those whose hearts weren't turned turned towards God, they killed the prophets. They stoned them. And it's no different with Jesus as he comes. The people who aren't seeking the truth will seek to kill him. 
I think that's a little bit about what Moses and Elijah are supposed to teach us on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, let me say some things here that I think as we close, that I think are a good word for us today. I want us to focus for just a minute on those words from the cloud. This is my beloved son talking about Jesus, my one and only unique, eternal son. Listen to him. Listen to him. You know, sometimes I think we're like Peter. I think we call ourselves followers of Jesus, and yet we're full of good suggestions. We think we know more than Jesus knows. We have a word for Jesus about how his kingdom could be more successful. We've got an idea about what we should do to make Jesus' movement attract a bigger audience. So often, I think we're guilty of being like Peter. Too much talking about religious things and not enough just listening to Jesus. Just hearing the words of Jesus, following Jesus. And it's kind of funny when it's Peter. But you have to ask the question, what about me? I call myself a follower of Jesus, but how much time do I spend listening to him? Am I submitted to the way that Jesus wants to work? I was thinking about, well, actually I was reading an old sermon by a guy named Vance Habner. And he was talking about that story of Elijah and the sacrifices. One of the things that Elijah did right before he asked God to send down fire from the altar is he took big vats and buckets of fluid and poured it on the sacrifice. And it wasn't lighter fluid. It wasn't gasoline to help God out. He didn't use really dry wood. He didn't take a cigarette lighter. He took water and he dumped it on those sacrifices. He didn't need to help God out. He wanted to make sure that people knew that what was happening there was solely a work of God, not a work of man. You know, Jesus' way is not the way of the world. It's not the way of man. Jesus doesn't need our clever marketing and ideas. He doesn't need us to clean up his message to make it more palatable to 21st century Americans. Jesus has a message of the cross, of death, that speaks about the sin of people. And no, people don't want to hear about sin today. They never have. But I think so often we are guilty of thinking that we're going to help Jesus' movement out. We're going to soften the talk about sin and repentance. We're just going to talk about the joy of Jesus. We're like Peter. We want to do away with the talk about the cross. And Jesus says, <laughs> we saw last week, you want to follow me? You got to take up your cross. Die to self. Deny yourself. But we get rid of all of that. We're like liberal theologians so often. We come to a passage like this, and I have to confess, it's like, man, this is kind of weird. To talk about Jesus and his radiance and all of that, it doesn't really seem to fit with normal life. 
And we're tempted to take all of the supernatural things, all of the miracles, all the strange things out, and just maybe present the ethical or moral teachings of Jesus. We ignore the uncomfortable or hard things. And here's what the Father says. This is my son. Listen to him. Let him set the agenda. Let him be the one that tells you what the gospel is, how the kingdom works. Listen to him. I'm just about convinced that the most important or distinguishing mark of a Christian is that we listen to Jesus. We're submitted. When I say listen, I don't just mean it goes in one ear and out the other. We are submitted to the teachings of Jesus. Are you? Are you? Am I? Or are we trying to help Jesus out and come up with a better, slicker message for today? Are you listening to Jesus? That's my question in closing for you. You know, Jesus says the first thing you need to do is be born again. You've got to have a brand new life to trust Christ. Have you done that? If you've not turned your heart back to God, trusted in Jesus, you're not listening to Jesus. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. You need to be baptized. If you've trusted Christ, that's a mark of obedience. Are you listening to Jesus? For those of you that have been Christians a while, you've been born again, you're involved in church, you've been baptized, how are you listening to Jesus? Are you studying his word daily? Are you taking seriously what he says about life and how to order your life? Are you listening to the word? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of Jesus, to lead you and to guide you? Or are you listening to the voices and the siren songs of the world? It's a great question for us. If Jesus is Lord, and He is the radiant, majestic Son of God who's come to save us from our sins and lead us into eternal life, we should listen to Him. Are you listening to Him today? Are you submitted to Him? I'm going to ask the musicians to come, and we're going to do a couple more songs. We're going to close in worship today. I'm going to sing a couple of old songs. Well, one's old. If you grew up in church like I did, you've probably sang this song a thousand times at the end of a service. It's called I Surrender All. And I don't want us to just go through the motions of singing a song. We want this to be truly worship. of Surrendering, surrendering ourselves, submitting ourselves to Jesus. Afresh and anew today. Man, I tell you what the world needs. The world needs Jesus Christ. They need to see it first and foremost in His people. So I'm going to invite you to sing. And in singing, to surrender again to Jesus. And then the last song we're going to do is called Give Me Jesus. It's just about the beauty and the supremacy and the majesty of Christ. How He is our all in all. And that every day of our lives... We need to refocus on Jesus.